Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this episode of the Anthropology Channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Trapagan, an anthropologist and professor in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I'm very happy to uh, welcome Dr. William Kelly to talk about his recent book, The Sports World of the Hanshin Tigers, Professional Baseball in Modern Japan, which was published by the University of California Press in 2019. Professor Kelly, thank you for joining me on the New Books Network. Good morning, John. I'm looking forward to discussing this with a fellow anthropologist of Japan. Great. Yeah, this should be fun. Um, I'm going to begin with a little background about Dr. Kelly. He is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology and the Emeritus Sumitomo Professor of Japanese Studies in the Department of Anthropology at Yale University. He received his PhD in Sociocultural Anthropology from Brandeis University, And among his publications are books on water control in Tokugawa, Japan, and deference and defiance in 19th century Japan. He has also written widely on um, broader dynamics of class formation in Japanese society. And uh, much of his research over the past two decades has explored sport and body culture and their significance in modern Japan. The book we are discussing today is based on ethnographic research conducted from 1996 to 2003. And actually, I think we'll come back a little bit later and talk about that long time span. And the research was done in the Kansai area of Japan and explored patterns of professional baseball in the cities of Osaka and Kobe. And I'm actually going to begin partway into the book uh, with chapter seven because the chapter opens with the observation that sports fans often fantasize about becoming elite athletes. And if this fails, as it normally does, uh, they then imagine being sports journalists or broadcasters. And, you know, the glamour and the fun of following one's favorite sport for a living seems like a great way to spend a career. So I'm wondering how you got into doing a study of sport. Was it a labor of love for baseball? Was it a fascinating potential set of problems to think about um, as an anthropologist or some combination of these? How how did you get onto this topic? Well, it is true. I must say I am a fan of baseball and played it like many kids when I was young. And uh, from my childhood, I've been a fairly steady fan of the Boston Red Sox. So there was a lot of skepticism, frankly, among my friends and colleagues in the mid-90s when I turned to this topic from other research that was quite different. But in truth, there isn't much connection. It was not so much that, but I can date the moment of interest to a particular day back in the 1980s. I started teaching here at Yale in 1980, and In late October in 1985, I walked down my driveway to pick up the New York Times. Back then, there were print 
versions that they actually delivered to the driveway and brought it up and was uh, drinking my morning coffee and reading the New York Times before I went to school. I was teaching and always taught in the fall semester a survey course on Japanese society. And I opened the Times to the sports section. And there was an article by the then Times bureau chief in Tokyo, who was extremely exercised by an event that happened the day before, in which an American player, a fellow named Randy Bass, who was unknown in the U.S., he had come out of the minor leagues, but he was a superstar in Japan. And this was the last day of the regular season in 1985. And his team, the Hanshin Tigers, was playing their arch rival, the Tokyo Yomiuri Giants. And Randy Bass was one home run away from breaking the longtime season home run record of Sadaharu O, the kind of Japanese equivalent of Babe Ruth. And the Yomiuri pitchers pitched around him the entire game and denied him the chance to break that record. And to the New York Times, this was a classic example of Japanese national character, that they could never really accept foreigners and that they would do their best to undermine the efforts of the foreigner. And I read this, and it seemed to be wildly misleading. And I cut it out of the Times. Back then, you actually cut articles out of the newspaper. And I brought it in, and I Xeroxed it, and I handed it out in my class. And I said, look, this is an example of national character gone crazy. And of course, this is the 1980s. And Japan was an economic powerhouse. And Japan was very much in American national consciousness. And U.S.-Japan imaging back and forth was very powerful. And it seemed to me wrongheaded because, first of all, Randy Bass was a superstar in in Kansai, in Osaka, Japan's second city. He was given the keys to the city. Um, There were other things going on beyond the fact that he was an American player. This was a rivalry that went back to the 1930s, the Tigers versus the Giants. These Japanese, these Giants pitchers were standing on the mound and looking to the dugout, and their manager was none other than Sadaharuo. And a pitcher is going to look at his manager and say, I'm not the one who's going to serve up the ball that Randy Bass is going to hit to break that record. Um, And in fact, the fans, although it was played in Tokyo, were booing these pitchers for not doing it. So there are all sorts of dynamics going on that had nothing to do with this being a Japanese versus American uh, uh, incident. Um, This was about baseball and the rivalries, Red Sox, Yankees, Giants, Tigers, and um, the dynamics between managers and pitchers. And so this is what I was trying to explain to the class, um, which they were quite receptive. And I used this example from year after year until I realized that it's easy to say, but I actually didn't know much about Japanese baseball. And it took a number of years to find time to actually get started, but I got into this project to actually learn something more about Japanese baseball so that I could do more than just be the typical teacher, critic, 
making exploring easy points um, off of, off of a newspaper uh, article. And it turns out, um, as you know, baseball is enormously popular and long-standing in Japan. It goes back to the 1870s. Um, it is Japan's national sports pastime, um, the way it is in Cuba, the way it sometimes has been in the United States. Um, and it's, it you know, has the equivalent status of, say, soccer in Italy. Um, it is the number one sport um, for Little League, for uh, school, for high school, for college, uh, for semi-pro industrial leagues and for these professional leagues. And so it was a window into um, Japanese education. It was a window into Japanese media. It was a window into uh, a Japanese a corporate uh, a life and corporate sponsorship. So it was more, those were the, those were the things that led me um, to this, uh, to this study. Yeah. I think the um, importance of, of that, dynamic and understanding what's going on at an individual level and understanding how people are interacting, you know, the, the, these things often get so covered up when these broad, you know, proclamations get made about Japanese culture or, or any other culture for that matter. It's not just Japan. Um, I, I thought about, um, when I was reading the book, I was thinking about, I think Robert Whiting's book, you gotta have law. And I remember that that came out in the eighties and I, I didn't like the book, but I remember him making a comment about the perfect Japanese game is a tie in baseball. And I thought, you know, I've known a lot of people who play baseball in Japan, and I can't think of a single one of them who's happy with a tie. Um, you know, they want to win. And, and that has that remains one of the enduring stereotypes about Japanese baseball. And so actually, in the midst of this research, I went back <clears throat> and uh, coded the uh, 3,000 games um, in professional baseball, <coughs> excuse me, since uh, the start of professional baseball. And it turned out that uh, the number of ties in Japanese professional baseball is around 3%. And you open the sports pages uh, uh, back then in the National Hockey League, the percentage of ties was around 30%. And nobody ever accused American, North American hockey players of playing for ties to save face. And uh, so that this notion of tie, and it also turned out when I was talking with uh, baseball people about this notion of tie, a lot of it has to do with the way professional baseball is is played uh, in Japan in the stadiums. That is, these are largely urban stadiums. Unlike the U.S., most Japanese, almost all Japanese, come to the stadiums on public transportation. Almost all the games are played in the evening, starting around 6 or 6.30. And if a game goes into extra innings and it gets to be 11.12 and public transportation shuts down, the teams... And the parent companies are, are put in this terrible bind. How do you get 50,000 people home without public transportation? So they had to put limits on the innings. The second problem was these are stadiums largely in the middle of very dense urban neighborhoods. And the noise of the fans 
after 10 o'clock, we're producing lawsuits for uh, noise abatement or demands. And so bringing an end to making sure that games were over so that the neighborhoods were not disrupted throughout the night and people could get back is much more important in explaining the 12 inning, 14 inning uh, limits that they placed on the on these games rather than some Japanese notion of saving face. You're right. I never saw, I never talked to a baseball player that was trying to save the face of the opponent team. Uh, yeah, that's, that's just not part of it. You know, my, my, my son played little league baseball in Japan and even at the little league late level, I mean, they wanted to win. That was their goal. You know? <laughs> um, so, well, I'd like to, um, actually read a short passage from the book that I found to be uh, quite important as you work through laying out your strategy in, in research and writing of the book. And you say, the focus point of Tiger's baseball is the action on the field between the baselines. This is a compelling sport to play and watch. But the world of Tiger's baseball is composed of the intensive interactions among the extensive cast of characters. It is a world of life and livelihood and identity, of dreams and disappointments, of profits and pleasures. The question was then, just how might I conceptualize this as an ethnographic space? And I think for anthropologists, this is a, a very important question. And the way that you respond to the question, I think, is, is through this notion of the sports world of the Hanshin tai, uh, baseball as a kind of melodrama. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a bit about this and explain how you arrived at this way of thinking about the ethnographic space you explored. Um, sure, I, you're right. This is extremely important to me as a way of, of conceptualizing what I saw going on uh, with the hunting baseball. But I, it's also, I think, a way of thinking about many other sports productions and performances as well. It actually began as a kind of ethnographic puzzle. And many of our ethnographies are formed around puzzles. When I started doing this work, actually getting starting this baseball project, my first uh, decision was to go to Osaka, the second city, rather than Tokyo, because a lot of the commentary about Japanese baseball, Robert Whiting lives in Kamakura outside of Tokyo, writes about Tokyo and Yomi and Yomiuri baseball. So I wanted to get out of Tokyo. And in Osaka, in Kansai, um, at the time, there were three professional teams. Um, in addition to the Hanshin Tigers, um, there was also a team called Oryx Blue Wave. And they had this exciting new young uh, player called Ichiro. Um, who was uh, getting a lot of popularity. And it had a, a, a third team, the Kintetsu Buffalo. And Kintetsu was another of the uh, regional railroad companies that was sponsoring uh, baseball and other sports teams. And so I initially was going to do a three-team comparison of Kansai baseball. But as I settled in to Osaka and Kansai, I realized that absolutely nobody in the entire Kansai region was interested in Oryx or Kintetsu. Um, that 98% 
of the coverage of the conversations you heard in the streets and on the buses, um, of the television news. It always began with the Hunching Tigers. So this was really a, it was as if the Hunching Tigers had used up the entire sports energy space um, of that region. And so the question became, why the Tigers and not the other two teams? Because in fact, the other two teams were quite successful. Um, Ichigo and Oryx had won the Japan series uh, two seasons in a row. Hunching Tigers were hapless losers from 1983 to 2003, 20 years. They finished in the cellar 10 years. Um, They only had a winning season three times. And so trying to understand why they had captured the imagination and the passion of everyone in the Kansai region was the sort of the puzzle that got me started. And that led me to these two sort of concepts of a sports world and a notion of, of soap opera, of, of, of melodrama. And the notion of the sports world, you know, there are lots of sports books that are written about a particular team or a biography of a player, or a manager, um, or a stadium, or the fans of the fans of the Chicago Cubs. But to me, the you know there are eighteen players playing baseball in stadiums all around Japan. What makes the Hunching Tigers the Hunching Tigers is not just the players themselves, but the manager and the coaching staff and the front office and the ownership the fans in the stadium, the particular stadium playing in Kosiem, the media that follow the Hunching Tigers, that the Hunching Tigers are really a collective production um, of all of these, all of these elements that, that interact over games and seasons and years to produce um, something that we know of as the Hunching Tigers. And sports world is a is a version of a of a concept in sociology called a social world um, that the Chicago sociologist Howard Becker came up with um, back in the 1960s. There's a very compelling way of trying to figure out how all of these disparate characters with various interests and positions actually produce um, something like a a baseball team. Um, or a soccer team, you can think of Barcelona, um, or you know other. My daughter's uh, softball travel team in the 1990s. Um, it's all about the various people who come together um, in their different roles to produce um, this Hanshin Tiger baseball. Yeah, it actually. Uh, as I read through this, uh, you know, I'm I'm a uh, fellow Red Sox fan. I grew up in Boston, and so, um, and I thought a lot about this because it, you know, as I was reading, I thought, well, yeah, this is what I grew up. I grew up with a melodrama, and there's actually kind of an interesting thing about that. You know, I, I live in Texas, and uh, my son was playing little league baseball at the time that the Red Sox won the series in '04, and there was a coach from another team, and he and I had, you know, chatted a little bit but we didn't know each other all that well. And we happened to cross each other on the baseball, you know, field one day walking between games or something. And we didn't say anything. We just walked up and we just hugged each other. And then we kind of smiled and then we just went on. (laughs) 
And, you know, it was like, it was really interesting because it, it, there was this connection between us through that melodrama where he was from Boston, he's a Red Sox fan. And, you know, so we had this connection, but I also thought when they finally won the world series in 04, the melodrama ended and it's been a very different story ever since then. It doesn't feel the same being a Red Sox fan. I mean, Cubs probably had a similar thing. Cubs fans when they won, but it, it, it really struck me. This is a wonderful way to think about it. It's like a, you know, for the Red Sox, it was an 86-year melodrama that went on, basically, and it changed. And I wonder, did the did the, did the um, storyline change dramatically when Hanshin finally, you know, won the Japan Series? Um, when the when Hanshin uh, won the Japan Series, this was in 1985, <clears throat> and this was a complete anomaly. It's the only time they've ever won it. And they immediately sunk back into their cellar-dwelling ways uh, throughout the 80s and 90s, up until, ironically, 2003, 2004, when under a new manager, an outside manager, all of a sudden they won the Central League title right around the same time as the Red Sox. And precisely what you're saying, um, all of a sudden people didn't give up their support of Hanshin, but they no longer had the same uh, sort of emotional qualities and attachment to the team when it started playing like a regular team. Uh, It has not won the Japan series since then, but it's won the league and it's, it's just sort of a normal team with its ups and downs. Um, And uh, so that a lot of the attack, it wasn't that, the people in Osaka and Kansai loved failure. I mean, some people think that's the reason why. I mean, sometimes people would say, well, the tires are like a, you know, like one of our kids, they're not doing too well, but they're our kids. So we're going to support them no matter what. And there there were qualities of that, I guess. But to me, I I came to realize that there were two other sources of, fascination um, and attachment that people had for the team and for Hanshin Tigers baseball. And one had to do with seeing what was, the Hanshin Tigers were a workplace. These are professional athletes are going out, they're playing every day. Um, They were performing, this is a job in which you're performing publicly every day in front of 50,000 people. Actually, none of us have jobs that are so exposed day after day. Um, the In Japan, um, in Osaka, more like Europe than the United States, you had daily sports newspapers. Um, so every day there were five different sports papers in the Kansai area that competed. And every day, all of them had the Hanshin Tigers on the front page what they had done the day before, what was going on in the front office, the latest sort of gossip and and dysfunctionality. Um, So that people were following the Tigers and the way the team was put together on a daily basis. It had this quality of of soap opera um, and, uh, and, 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 and and melodrama. And Osaka is a, is a city in an area of 
medium and small companies. Most of the major corporations, many of them were based in Osaka in the first half of the 20th century, and then they ended up moving their headquarters up to Tokyo. So you really had a a sense that um, these were the workplaces of the fans were not unlike the workplaces of the Hanshin Tigers. And they could see the 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 infighting and and the rivalries and the, uh, the the stresses in the field were not unlike the same things they felt themselves in their jobs in the factories or the offices around around Osaka. So they really appreciated um, and felt for the tensions of the Hanshin Tigers as as a, as as a workplace. And the other thing was this kind of second city mentality that. Osaka had a, a pride as equal to Tokyo for uh, much of the 20th century and then lost to um, Tokyo absorbing um, corporate educational political uh, power. And so the Tigers sort of carried the weight of their second city mentality um, much more than the other two teams because it was the Tigers who played in the same Central League as the Yomiuri Giants played them 26 times a year um, in the course of the season. And so it was really through the Tigers that um, the people of Kansai could sort of express their resentment towards the center, um, their sense that we're going to try as hard as we can, but inevitably the second city is not going to be able to stand up to uh, the national capital. Yeah, the, the power of Tokyo in, in, in Japan is, I, I think, it, it's difficult to, you know, overstate. I, if you spend time there, or you study Japan, you realize everything is centered in Tokyo, just everything. Yeah, that, um, it's hard to explain to American students because we have multiple centers. Um, it's much easier to explain to Spanish students or French students. <laughs> um, there are these countries in which there is a single national center, and Japan is more like is one of those countries. Or Swedish students, it's more like that than um, than the U.S. or or Canada. Um, that really shapes so many things, including including sports. Yeah. So I am. Um... Later on in the introduction, you um, you started writing about uh, the sort of the tightly framed rules that shape any sport, and and you note that meaningfulness comes through that process of framing, and and I, I found this to be a very interesting way to think about things. I, I tend to think about culture as a kind of a playbook that people use to navigate their social environment, and off of that, they constantly improvise new ways of dealing with that environment, and. So I thought this was a very insightful uh, way of looking at things because it seemed as though the baseball diamond provides kind of a microcosm. And I think we're sort of getting at this in, in thus it, it, there's an intense focus on the diamond or, or maybe in this sports world through which you can analyze and, and understand the process of meaning create creation. And I, I wonder what you would think about that way of looking at sport. No, I agree with you entirely. I think that's, Part of the the fascination of sport as a as a human activity, there it has two corollaries. One is what is 
intriguing about sport is that it has such a, an explicit formal rule book by which things should be done. But it also has the informal ways in which you know, you're trying to fake out the player or um, slide back into base, you know, a hook slide. I mean, there, there, there are the formal rules and then there are the informal practices by which the players are trying to work with and through and around the rules. So there's this, it's a, it's a two-layered sense of, of how, a sense of how things should be done. And the other corollary to me, which is, makes in some ways, sports, the condensation of, of the human condition is, as you say, it has this, I mean, literally a rule book that, that you read and apply. So when a batter comes to the batter box and stands there, um, and there's the pitcher and the fielders, everything is dictated by the formal rules of baseball. So everything is, in a sense, overdetermined that particular moment. At the same time, you have absolutely no idea what's going to happen when the ball leaves the pitcher's hand. So there's this tension between a highly rule-governed situation and a completely uncertain moment next, a completely uncertain future. I mean, it could be a strike, it could be a ball, it could hit it one way or the other, it could get injured. They're all, and you just don't know what is going to happen. And so this, this intense, explicit formality on the one hand is always exposed to a, a radical uncertainty about the next moment. And this happens over and over and over again. And this is what life is like. We, as you say, we, we live by the, these these this notion, this framework of culture that we have developed over our life and our lives and our generations, but we don't know moment to moment how that's actually, I mean, to use a sports metaphor, how it's going to play out. Right. Yeah. There's a beauty in baseball too. I, I think in, in the, the, despite the fact that the rules are clear, you know, like the strike zone isn't, I mean, you know, it's, it's subjective with, with, uh, you know, every umpire and frankly with every batter and, you know, it's just, it's not this, you know, they may make that little box when you're watching it on TV, but that's not what the strike zone is. And, and there's a kind of inherent subjectivity. I find it very different from games like football where there's, you know, this sort of let's try to take all the subjectivity out of the game, but you can't do that with baseball because the rules themselves have a subjective quality to them in certain areas, like the defining of the strike zone. And even things like, you know, was the, was the, you know, shortstop's foot really on the bag when he turned the double play kind of thing, you know, that, that kind of stuff happens. And um, the, the umpires are so much a part of the game because they're constant, everything that happens is being determined and judged by the umpires as to whether or not it met the rule book. Um, so it's, it's, I guess they're, I don't know, they're, they're kind of like um, ongoing judges of, of, of how the culture is playing out. It's a very interesting context. Right. And they, they make an effort to 
objectify the subjectivity with instant replay. And so now you have a group of people sitting back in New York looking at uh, a series of monitors, but they're limited by the angle of the monitors. And you can watch baseball games in which they replay a controversial play was the, was the, was the outer safe at, at home plate. And you can look at it with three different angles and it looks a little bit different every way. So the even technology cannot resolve this sort of fundamental human quality that is in the judgment of the uh, of uh, of the play. Yeah, it's so this gets me thinking, you know, um obviously there's been more writing in recent years in in the social sciences on sport, but honestly the the amount of writing you know I, I'm you you talk a little bit about um sort of ritual and religion in relation to uh, baseball. And we'll, we'll come to that. But why do you think there's been comparatively so little writing among social scientists on sport as compared to um, religion for that matter? Um, you know, th- there are a lot of similarities. You point out some of the similarities. Um, in fact, you know, just in chapter six, um, you get into a really interesting discussion where you get into some of the similarities between ritual and religion and sport. Um, and I really like the way that you drew parallels with Japanese festivals. I agree. There's a kind of festival quality to going to a Japanese baseball game. That's quite different from American games. And um, I'm, I'm curious, why do you think baseball, sport, baseball, uh, you know, in general sport has not been a huge focus, a primary focus of the interest of social scientists, unlike areas like religion? Well, I wish I could answer that, and I can't. And I've thought about it for a long, long time. It's not even in comparison to topics like ritual and religion, but even within popular culture, there are far more books written by anthropologists and social sciences, science scientists about music uh, than or television um, than about sport, and yet sport is depends on how one calculates uh, economic share but it's you know after agriculture one of the third or fourth most largest economic sectors in the global economy so it's economic might it's watched by far more people we have three or four fascinating books in Japan anthropology about rap and hip hop <laughs> a single book about baseball I mean, it's sports. I don't. I don't know why. I really don't know why that is. And those of us, those few of us who have worked on sport topics, occasionally get together at meetings and we sit around and we scratch our heads and we just can't figure out why. Because for students, it's incredibly. I mean, I have this. I teach a class, a course at Yale, uh, sports society and culture, and. I could have four or 500 students in the course. I'm limited by the number of TAs because I can't grade 400 papers. I can have 400 undergraduates. It's hard to find two graduate students who want to serve as a TA because they think it will look bad on their CV to have TA at a course on sport and not a course on, say, religion or ritual. So there's this, there's this odd 
um, disjunction between uh, the power of, of sport as a vehicle for teaching sort of fundamental uh, themes in uh, anthropology and the human condition and the professionals, the graduate students, and we teachers to actually look into that, uh, look into that topic. Um, I wonder if, you know, I, I mean, some of it may just be personal interest. I, I certainly know I have many colleagues who aren't particularly interested in sport, but then I have others who are really, you know, fans of baseball or football or, or whatever. Um, I wonder if it might be in some ways related to the, the tension that exists in American universities between the athletic side and the academic side of the universities and maybe some of the frustrations that academics have with what goes on in the sports side. I don't know, that's just a wild guess. But. No, I'm sure. I think there is something to that. Um, mm-hmm. And I also think that maybe we academics are suspicious of becoming possibly interested in sport because we might, I mean, either we have no interest in it or, as you say, we're, we might be fans of sports or doing sports ourselves and worry that we can actually look at this topic in any anything other than mm. as a fan. Um, it certainly helps as a Japan anthropologist coming to this topic in the middle of my career you know, to actually mm-hmm. look at it as sport, but also as a as a vehicle for thinking about these larger questions of, of education and, and media and the like in Japan. Yes. That, that kind of thing always underscores the importance of, of tenure. Um, it allows people to explore new ideas that, that, you know, might get a, a wink and a nod and kind of like, hmm, why is he doing that? But you can do it. Right. And, and, no, it that's- and it's, it's a question of tenure. It's also a question of teaching. I mean, a lot of my, research ideas actually come out of teaching both undergraduates and graduate students and being challenged by their questions, being interested by their questions um, that lead me to think about my subject, my research subjects in in different ways. So I've always found teaching to be a real source of, of research inspiration. And certainly, as I described, this, it was the it was the starting point for this for this study. Yeah, I often think students are my best teachers. Uh, they they every so often I'll get a question in a class, and I just kind of stop and go, "Wow, that was a really interesting question." Um, and it, I, I didn't answer the other part of your question: the connection between sports and ritual and religion. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic in relation to Japan. And it had a particular resonance with Hanshin Tiger baseball because the Hanshin Tigers play in a stadium on the edge of Osaka called Kosien. You you know it. Readers, listeners, uh, if you've been to Japan, may have heard because it is the iconic uh, yeah. stadium in Japan. Partly because it's where the national high school baseball tournaments are held um, every August and also uh, every every April, it's it's sort of like Yankee Stadium and and Fenway rolled together. Um, <laughs> yes. And it, it it was built around the time of the first Yankee Stadium in the mid 1920s, largest stadium in Asia, held 55,000 people. Um, it has. Over the years, you know, developed this really powerful set of set of associations, and so 
the fans who come to Kosien to cheer the Hanshin Tigers are even more passionate and story than the fans who come to most other stadiums. And they turn out to be just enormously uh, organized, um, enormously vocal, um, mm-hmm. enormously self-choreographed. One of the fascinating things about Hansing Tiger Sports World is that sort of like the the fan clubs for European soccer, they exist independent of the club itself mm-hmm. um, and sometimes resolutely opposed to um, the front office and the owners of, of, the, of, of the team. Um, they, since the 1970s, have developed um, highly uh, uh, routinized uh, routines. I mean, we have, for American football, cheerleaders who stand you know, on the field and try to lead the fans when they're not drinking in, their, in, a, in a few cheers. If anyone has been to a Japanese professional baseball uh, stadium, during a game, you know the ways in which the trumpets and the flags and the gear and the, the the hitting marches, the separate hitting marches for every batter who comes to the batter's box, um, represent the most colorful, passionate display of fan participation, and that's what gives it a real festival quality. You know as as you know, as you've written about and, and others, rituals in Japan that focus on uh, temples and shrines and villages and, and, and neighborhoods have this interesting sort of dual quality of being very formal, very serious mm-hmm. sort of rituals propitiating uh, local uh, uh, gods and and spirits on the one hand, but also a real sort of party time atmosphere, a lot of drinking, a lot of yeah. breaking down of normal social norms. And these are the two sides of, of the ritual. And a baseball stadium, in a sense, replicates some of that festival atmosphere. It is a baseball game. It's highly formalized. It's, it's highly structured. But the fans are, are pouring their passions and their emotions into their into their behavior in this kind of somewhat unrestrained but still choreographed way. And Kosian is probably the best example of that in in all of Japan. Yeah, that's uh, as you described that I started getting pictures in my mind of of the festival of naked men up in the area where I do my research and and the it is a wild experience to go all night. Have you ever been to that? Um, I've not, but I've I've certainly read about it and seen seen pictures of it. And yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, it's 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 on the one hand, it's extremely as you describe, extremely choreographed. Uh, it's very formalized. On the other hand, it's just kind of wild, you know. And and um, there's a, uh, and there's lots and lots of drinking and, and it's very much a, a huge party. And at the same time, uh, a very powerful ritual. And I actually remember asking the, uh, head priest, uh, uh, at the, um, temple that does this in, in, um, the city of Oshu about this. And she told me that, um, I asked her, you know, why, why did, 
what's with the naked thing? I was really curious about why they do that. And she said, uh, well, it's, it's because that's how you come in the world. So that's how you should present yourself to the, to the Kami, to the deities. And, you know, so you, you present yourself as, as you are in the most natural state. Now that's very interesting because that's a very, you know, kind of powerful imagining of us in relation to the deities. And at the same time, they're also presenting themselves drinking and cavorting. And, you know, it's, it's a, a, a very complicated environment. I, I really saw, as you wrote about um, Hanshin, at least, that it, it captures that very much that kind of festival atmosphere. Uh, it's really a beautiful part of the book, actually. I really enjoyed that. No, and, and one of the qualities that uh, you, I realized in attending <laughs> a great many uh, games was the image that we have is the, the fans coming to Kosien, sitting there, drinking and cheering loudly, wildly, maniacally the entire game. <laughs> but in fact, and that happens, say, in Premier League soccer games in Manchester and Birmingham and, and Liverpool. In Japan, what's interesting is the fans cheer when the Hanshin Tigers are at bat. <clears throat> and when the other team comes to bat, there may be a contingent of fans from Yomiuri who come down from Tokyo or the Carp fans who come from Hiroshima. They will cheer for their players. But what are the Hanshin fans doing? They're talking to each other. They're schmoozing. I mean, that there's <clears throat> the, the experience of going to a game is this experience of being just throwing yourself into the cheering while your team is at bat on the offense and then watching the game, but also sort of intensely, quietly socializing with everybody around you um, for the other half of the inning. Yeah. And it's this, it's, it's, it's the combined experience that makes going to the, going to the game um, so, uh, so entertaining and so intriguing and so compelling um, for these people who come night after night uh, to Kosien. I'm, I'm just curious. Did you notice, uh, like you go to American baseball games, particularly college baseball games, you'll notice that um, there will be quite a few people who have got a scorecard or a scorebook and they keep score very carefully. Did, did you see a lot of that in, in the stadium or, or were they more engaged in cheering and rooting, but not necessarily following the details of the game? Uh, there, is, there is some scorekeeping. I noticed more scorekeeping when I went to some college games or some high school games. But uh, by and large, uh, the ordinary fans are more drawn to the, to the sociality and the cheering. Um, when I typically, I would go, actually, I would probably go in late morning, uh, early afternoon, um, when the office, the, the the front office was coming, talk to people. Um, during the afternoon, there would be practices um, by the visiting team and and the home team, and the large media contingent would be out on the field, and so I would be interacting with them. The game itself was from six o'clock um, until roughly nine or nine fifteen, sometimes later, and I would sit in the press box for the first half. And then I would go out into the stadium among the fan clubs for the second half. The press always kept score. 
mm-hmm. although they had their laptops and and their computers and they were they were typing and filing they always kept score by hand even even now interesting and they so that they would have score books you know going back 20 years they you know i could ask them about a particular game and they could pull out <laughs> the scorecard for that game and what wow. they had written down wow well, I'd like to turn a little bit to a discussion of your chapter on baseball as entertainment and education. And, and you actually open with um, a discussion of Robert Whiting's uh, book, The Chrysanthemum and the Bat. And I realize as we're going through this, it's actually hard to talk about Japanese baseball from a sort of outside perspective without bringing up Whiting's work, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. Um but the chrysanthemum, the bat, of course, draws on, you know, Benedict's at a distance take on Japanese culture. And I don't know, we can, we can get into some of the problems with, with her work. But um, I was kind of interested in, you know, as you know, Whiting developed the kind of notion of baseball as capturing the, the warrior ethic of the samurai. And um, you quite clearly debunk this. Um, you make it pretty clear later in the chapter when you note that there there really isn't anything we can call Japanese baseball. And I thought that was actually a really powerful way to think about this. And you note that there are, you know, lots of different levels of baseball in Japan that um, individual players, just like in the U S will bring varied and complex motivations and interest to the diamond. You know, there's, there's, you know, everything from little league all the way up to professional baseball, of course. And there are even different forms of baseball. I was always struck by, um, you know, the, the Nanshiki and Koshiki forms that, that, um, you know, school kids play and they go to middle school and they play with a rubber ball and an aluminum bat, which is quite different. Um, and so as I, I felt, um, one point that came through really well was that, um, you know, at times baseball in Japan has had difficulties actually defining itself as being either distinctly Japanese or being a foreign import. Um, and, you know, I've spent, as you know, we've talked about, like you, I've spent my career trying to understand and, and represent life in Japan. And I, I found this approach you took very refreshing and very compelling. Um, and throughout the book, you really do a wonderful job of, of capturing the complexity of life within the world of baseball. And through that, you challenge a lot of the stereotypes that often seem to be used and to characterize life in Japan. And I, I think for me, it seemed that that was really one of the aims of your writing this book. And I'm, I'm wondering if that is in fact the case. Well, uh, thank you for uh, reading that so carefully because that is exactly to the point. Robert Whiting was quoted in the New York Times article back in 1985 uh, about the Randy Bass controversy, and he's been quoted in most articles on Japanese baseball, and deservedly so. Um, Mm -hmm. Whiting went to Japan um, in the 1960s, and he's been living there ever since. He knows more about Japanese baseball than most Japanese commentators and writers. Mm -hmm. And I give him an enormous credit. He writes well, and The Chrysanthemum and the Bat, and You've Got to Have Wa as a second book, um, are both well worth reading for Japanese baseball. Mm -hmm. We've had our differences over the years. um, Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that he finds my work particularly persuasive to him. (laughs) 
the problem that I have is not that Whiting is wrong, but that he's his the the view in the books quite incomplete. Mm. Um, there is a a national level to baseball, like there is to soccer and other major sports, um, but it's really not in play for most of the experiences of Japanese players and spectators. When I sit in Fenway Park and watch the Red Sox play against the Yankees, I'm not thinking, oh, this is American baseball. You know, I'm thinking, these are the Red Sox and these are the Yankees. And I know the history of those two particular teams. When I go to uh, watch my daughter's uh, travel team softball play, I'm not thinking, you know, this is American baseball. Likewise, mm-hmm. most of the people sitting in Kosien Stadium watching the Hunching Tigers are not thinking about, you know, when they so when they looked at Randy Bass, they weren't thinking, here's an American. They're thinking, here's one of our star players. And we hope mm-hmm. that he hits a home run and, 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 and wins for the team. Um, that the level of, of national rivalry plays a much smaller role in what people see in sports um, than uh, the the image you would get from only reading something like the chrysanthemum and the bat. It is true, um, as he notes, that there is an effort by some uh, commentators of baseball to connect a a warrior samurai spirit to the way baseball should be played um, and should be watched. Um, There is a historical connection going back to the 1890s when Bushido, the way of the warrior, was reinvented as a a national um, self-conceit in the newly modern Meiji state um, and baseball uh, as played by the most prestigious uh, boys school um, beat an American team. There was this sort of national connection, but I actually have never run across a coach or a player who talks to me about what they're doing as as shaped by, you know, being a samurai. Um, mm-hmm. It exists at sort of at, at a level of, of storytelling that doesn't really capture much of what they're trying to do. I mean, teamwork is not a Japanese, uniquely Japanese concept and giving right. one's all self-sacrifice yeah. um, is not a distinctive Japanese character. It's what team sports you know, trying to balance individual talent and individual drive with the need to uh, discipline, to obey, uh, to contribute um, is is all about. And that is something that actually brings Japanese and Cuban and American um, and Colombian uh, baseball players uh, together in the same kind of psychological uh, dynamic. Yeah, th- this is something I think, you know, I, I've I've always had troubles with Whiting's uh, books. And it, part of it, I think, has to stem from the fact that it, it they work from this way that 
culture is often used in which it's seen as inevitably a unifying sort of thing and misses the fact that a culture, you know, people sharing a culture, there can be a great deal of divisiveness in that. And I was you know, thinking of uh, years ago, I, my family and I went to a, uh, so, so my family is, I think I've mentioned in the past when we've gotten together, we're all baseball fans. And so uh, we went to a, a nationals game against the Yankees. We were in the area of DC and, and we thought, well, let's do that. And I had a Red Sox cap on, of course. Um, and there's this guy who, come, he comes down the steps and he goes and he gets his beer and he's got his Yankees shirt on and he comes back up and as he walks past me, he just looks at me and goes, Red Sox suck. <laughs> and he does this every time he goes to get beer or goes to the bathroom throughout the whole game, which was a lot of times. <laughs> and, you know, but it, it struck me as you, you think about that, it's like, okay, on the one hand, yeah, we're both Americans. We're both baseball fans. We're brought together by this. And yet these little things that we're wearing divide us at the same time. And it's, you know, culture is this much more complex thing that whatever it is, I'm not even sure what it is, but whatever it is, it's this very complicated thing that isn't just about pulling people together because within a context, there are rivalries, there are competitions, there are disagreements. And um, I think that's a really important feature of this book is that you really captured that very effectively. That, you know, yeah. It speaks to your your earlier uh, comment, you know, the ways in which talking about sports allows you to talk about larger questions of of culture and the power of culture to to shape, but also culture as embodying you know kind of diversity and and differentiation as much as um, standardizing and homogenizing um, and. These addressing these experiences that students have, that readers have in their everyday life, is a way of of making these important lessons about the human condition you know, very meaningful uh, to them. Yes. So early in the book, um, you note that, that field work uh, you did was conducted, you know, between the mid nineteen nineties and the early two thousands. And I, I will note that, uh, so when you started this, I was actually still working on my PhD at Pitt. Um, and, so, uh, and, and I actually still have uh, very strong memories of the first time I ever gave a talk at the uh, AAA meetings and, and you and Ted Bester walked in uh, just as I was starting. And, and I got very nervous because I saw these are two really important anthropologists in Japan. Um, and, but, you know, you, you, you come back to this, this time period um, later on in the chapter, and you note that in many ways, the sports world that, that you're depicting in the book no longer exists. And that, that really hit me because, you know, over the course of my career, I've thought a lot, the, a lot about this, this issue of, of time. And you note that there's a general decline in Japanese baseball as soccer has become more popular and as, as top Japanese baseball players have increasingly ended up in, in MLB in the U.S. Um, and I think the issue of temporality in the construction of ethnographic writing and the ways that we um, use that writing gets used, I, I think is really important to think about, particularly in relation to scholars outside of anthropology. And you know, I, I often cringe when I'll see uh, my own first book on dementia in Japan. It was published in 2000, um, being quoted today. 
often in, in gerontology circles as though it reflects the way things are, but it only reflects the way they were. It, it, things have changed a great deal in Japan as they think about uh, dementia and late life. Um, you know, Japanese, of course, are extremely literate people, so they read about Alzheimer's disease and all these other things. And so the, the lay of the land has changed quite a bit. And I think you did a really wonderful job of addressing this problem. And I'd like you to talk about this issue and how thinking about it kind of guided your writing. Um, it also, I, I think it might be interesting to talk a little bit about the long time frame. The, the book captures the fact that, you know, ethnographic research is tied to the life of the researcher. I thought a lot about this. Is, you know, we get older, we have careers, we have families. It isn't easy just to pick up and go do two years of ethnographic field work um, when you've got all these other things, you know, that you would uh, have to deal with. So collecting data is different. And so we often have shorter visits that take place over a, a long period of time. So, you know, could you talk a bit about this issue of, of temporality and about um, doing ethnographic field work in the way that you approached it? Um, y- yes, uh, I think these are really important issues for for careers as well as for writing and reading uh, ethnographies that anthropologists write. I mean, I, like almost all of us, back in the 70s, I spent three years doing field work and archival work uh, for my dissertation and uh, uh, finished the dissertation and took up my job. And many ethnographic monographs are revisions of dissertations based on that kind of field work. But as you say, when you get into a career and you have teaching responsibilities and and, and a family that you uh, are committed to and administrative responsibilities, that pattern of doing anthropology, field work-based anthropology becomes more and more uh, difficult. And so imagining ways of of being an anthropologist, being a field worker and a writer of ethnography is really important. And I don't think we spend enough time talking about that. But certainly, I was chair of the department. I was a, a dedicated parent. And, and it was difficult for me. And I, my wife had a, a full-time job that she could not leave to come to Japan for a year, year and a half of, of field work. So I had to devise a way of doing field work that was spread out over a number of years, which actually turned out to be a, a fairly effective uh, strategy of field work. I could go um, one year I went in, in February and March. So I went to the training camps and then I went to the exhibition games. Um, the, the next year I was there in April and May and June, the early part of the season. Um, another year I was there mostly in the fall at the end of the season when Hanshin was finishing in the cellar and other teams were going to uh, postseason um, and they started doing contract negotiations. So I could actually experience um, a full year of Hanshin Tiger baseball, but it was divided up um, across five or six or seven uh, years, and that gave me time to sort of absorb and think about the the one set of uh, field work and prepare for the next. Um, also, the internet was coming on 
the sports papers they subscribed to. So I could actually follow things um, between uh, fieldwork sessions and create, as I say, a, a way of doing um, fieldwork-based research that fit my life back here in the States. And I think many anthropologists, once they get into their career, if they're academic anthropologists, um, actually do this kind of, of field work and analysis um, and, and writing. The other issue you raise that's related to that is the so-called ethnographic present. As we, we, you know, we write these books in the present tense, and they're supposed to represent you know, the time that we were focused on understanding um, and being immersed in that particular world or with those particular categories um, of people. And sometimes we're apologetic about that, but I'm actually not. I don't think there's anything we need to apologize for. Um, If gerontologists want to read your book and imagine that um, 10 or 15 years later, that's exactly what's going on, that's more their problem than your problem. I mean, I think one of the strengths of ethnography that makes it different from and complementary to, say, history is we don't know what's going to happen. Now, we we spend a year or spend you know, this time with Hansing, Hansing Tiger fans and media and players and, 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 and managers, and we end up writing in a very open in kind of an open-minded way uh, because we don't know what the future is going to, a historian writing about say dementia in Japan over the second half of the 20th century sort of knows, knows the end point. And they end up writing a history that for which they already know the conclusion. And, we don't really know. The, what's, what's unusual about what I did was, in some ways, I did learn the conclusion in that in the early 2000s, that world began to change fundamentally. Um, Japanese baseball generally, but the Hanshin Tigers um, in, in, in particular. And so I could characterize the Hanshin Tiger sports world and its qualities Roughly over that period in the years before I started doing field work from the 1980s up to the early 2000s and actually look back on some of the reasons why um, that world ended up changing a character. And as you say, over the last 10 or 15 years, Japanese baseball, Japanese baseball particularly professional baseball, is being squeezed on both sides. Um, on the one hand, soccer, professional soccer, youth soccer, is be, has become much more popular um, in Japan. And on the other side, Major League Baseball has become ever more aggressive in going into Japanese baseball and taking out sort of asset stripping, taking out um, the the best players. I mean, Ichiro and Nomo were at the beginning, but now you know every year they're taking the players that you know really make Japanese professional baseball a quality product. Uh, I mean, the soccer is actually 
the more interesting case. My sense is soccer has become more important and more popular, more influential in Japan because it is much more the sport that East Asian countries can compete with. Baseball, Japan will always win. Baseball is played in South Korea, it's played in Taiwan, but Japanese baseball, and it's, it's not much played in China. Um, basketball is popular in China, but not too popular in Japan and, and not much played in Taiwan. Soccer is the sport in which North Korea, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, China um, have invested considerable amounts of sort of resources and prestige. Um, so that as you know, perhaps the US-Japan relationship in the late 20th century, mid-late 20th century was crucial to Japanese sensibilities and the Japanese economy. By the turn of the century, it was really East Asian geopolitics um, that have become you know, the really powerful uh, rivalries. And so again, sport has become a kind of platform for these geopolitical struggles among East Asian countries that also connects East Asia to, not to the U.S., but to Europe um, through um, the, uh, the fans of European soccer teams and the like. So soccer has been a, an idiom for a 21st century geopolitics the way baseball um, was an idiom uh, in, 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 in the 20th century. Um, I don't think this means Japanese professional baseball is going to disappear, but I think that it so far has not responded powerfully to these uh, two different uh, sets of, of pressures. Yeah, that's, uh, I think baseball also in the United States has changed quite a bit and, mm -hmm. and the the interest level in it is changing. There's, I think, a generational thing too that's going on with this in both places. And you know, I've thought about when I'm when I'm in Japan and I watch a little bit of soccer on 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 TV. The players just look so different from baseball players. The long, flowing hair and all this kind of thing. And um, but they do they capture a kind of different image, and and in a sense, a different imaginary that that's being kind of tapped into by by the fans, and that certainly. I think is also part of the way that, you know, Japan is just changing. And, and also, as you said, maybe Japan's and East Asia's relationship is shifting away from just being kind of with the U S and more, in, more involved with Europe and perhaps other places. I, you know, I'd imagine Australia and New Zealand as well. Um, so uh, is there, we've covered a lot of ground and, and there's a lot more in this book. This, this book, um, you know, I'll tell our, our listeners that there's a, a great deal of depth and detail in this book. And I'm wondering, is there anything uh, we haven't covered that you'd like to raise for our listeners? Uh, no, I appreciate your uh, attentive reading of, of most of the, the, the main uh, themes in the book, what I was trying to do. The only thing I would say, I, it's really the, what the re what readers might find in the book as an academic writing about sports i found that to be extraordinarily challenging it wasn't like writing about irrigation in rural japan 
um, because there's so much good sports writing. Um, and so the question is, what, what can an academic say and how can an academic write about something like sports that is of, of interest to readers who have access to such, uh, such entertaining sports journalism, um, but also instructive to students and colleagues um, in anthropology and other social sciences. And um, I'm not sure if I was successful, but I really had that in mind, trying to find a voice that was true to my academic and my anthropological um, ambitions, but also could reach people with more general sort of interests and experience in in in, in sports, um, and it, it it proved to be, you know, probably the most difficult writing challenge of the projects that I have undertaken so far. Well, I think you were very successful at that. I, the book is is first of all, it's beautifully written. It's very you know easy to read through. You actually did a, a wonderful job of engaging really, really complex uh, problems and, and concepts in anthropology without falling into the, the sort of jargon trap and, and, you know, getting into an area where all sorts of terminologies are being used that would be very hard for a general reader to necessarily penetrate. And, and the, the book really does a wonderful job of that. It's very approachable and yet incredibly detailed and incredibly full in terms of uh, both the ethnographic description and the analysis. There's just a lot going on. And so um, I think you accomplished that very effectively, to be honest. Yeah. So, so what's up next? Uh, Can you talk a little bit about uh, what, what you might be doing now and what your plans are for the future? Well, I I continue to be interested in sports topics and I had actually done some uh, work and some writing about the Olympics because East Asia, China, of course, 2008, Beijing, and South Korea before that, and Japan, the Olympic movement, which was a very uh, European-focused movement in the 20th century after Los Angeles, the Americans became invested in uh, the Olympics economically in terms of media. But in the 21st century, it's really been the East Asian countries that have enthusiastically embraced and competed with one another to put on the Olympics. So that that uh, intrigued me. Again, the way sports um, are embedded in, uh, implicated in, in, in politics, in regional politics. And so uh, following the 2020 uh, Olympics and what may or may not happen in the coming year with uh, postponement um, is, is, is something that, that I've, I've paid a bit of attention to. But my main project, I guess, at this point is taking me back to uh, northeastern Japan, to Tohoku, and to not so much rice agriculture, because there's not much rice agriculture left in uh, in this rice bowl that I started working in 50 years, 40 years ago in, in, uh, in the 1970s in Shonai. Um, but trying to, you know, as you have done yourself so beautifully, um, understand the the considerable 
change that has taken place um, in this region um, over the decades. Um, it's like the area you know and, and others, the, the mean age of farmers in the area that I've visited for 40 years is about 67 years old. Um, I live in a settlement that has 90 households. Um, when I was there in the 1970s, 85 of them were involved in rice farming. Now only five of them are. Um, in all sorts of ways, it's undergone changes that many people through conventionally playing out the demographic lines think is is a dead end that they're fast approaching. I'm, I'm not so certain. I don't think that uh, Shonai is rural, but not really agricultural. It's, it's regional, but it's not necessarily suffering terminal decline. And so trying to sort of have a sense of what, what's, what's in process in these regional localities um, without necessarily accepting the conventional uh, judgments is really what uh, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on at the moment. And, you know, this, this horrific uh, year of COVID-19 pandemic, you know, one thing it has taught us is we can't predict anything. Um, and yeah. the changes that it is producing in, in, in the routines of daily life all over Japan, as well as the rest of the world, makes the question of what is going on and what will be going on in regions like northeastern Japan a much more open and a much more interesting and a much more important question, I think. Yes, I, uh, I've i been fascinated following this in, in Iwate Prefecture, where you know I do my um, field work. And was a really intriguing thing that happened with COVID. They didn't have their first case, confirmed case, until the end of July. Um, and the, they were talking a lot about it. It became a major, you know, question um, in the media and a variety of places. Why does this prefecture, why is it not having this problem? And um, there were some very interesting explanations in newspapers and things. They were, at one point they were saying, well, maybe it's because the governor of the prefecture, um, he went to graduate school at Johns Hopkins. And so he's doing a particularly good job of handling it. But it's just, it was really intriguing to watch how local people were trying to respond to this strange anomaly of, of, of not having any confirmed cases. And um, I think also, yeah, the, the point that you make is, is, you know, right on the mark. This is what's happening in Northern Japan is, is yes, the population is declining, but, what I think a lot of people have missed is that this is also being viewed as an opportunity and people are trying to figure out how to strategically rethink their world um, in the face of a different demographic climate. The, the, the demographies, you know, that's obvious. It's clear what's happening, but that doesn't mean the place is, the place is declining. It's, it's uh, the kaleidoscope is turning and the pieces are adjusting to form a new pattern. Um, I think, it's a very interesting time to watch what's happening as people do that. Mm -hmm. No, and it's <laughs> the number of people living in Tohoku is has dropped back to about the number of people living in Tohoku in the 1960s. Well, 
it was a pretty full and vibrant place back in the 1960s. Now, it's true, it may decline further, but it may not. But this notion that of, of depopulation and uh, is seems to me to to imagine a future for a place before that future has actually shown itself inevitable. And uh, there are too many things that can, you know, this is the ethnographic present. I'm not interested in prognosticating about Shonai in 2040. I'm interested in trying to understand what people are doing now um, to continue to make the place a, a, a locality that is uh, familiar and satisfying for them. And there's plenty of evidence of that, um, at least at the level of uh, sustained ethnographic fieldwork. Yeah, you made that the, the, that point very clearly. That, that uh, meeting we were at in Vienna, and I think someone asked a question about the future of Tohoku, and you were very clear about it. Well, you know, we can't really predict that. It's it's let's look at what's happening now, and and understand that in depth, um, because there are too many variables to really be able to to say with any confidence at all where things are going to go. Because people are innovative, they're creative. I think that's one of the things that often gets kind of missed is the enormous creativity of people as they face something like changing demographics or changing economic systems. They come up with new ways to organize things. You know, social science generally, as within which is anthropology, you know, has been very good at understanding a contemporary situation. And it's been very good at understanding how a contemporary situation has come into being. It's been really bad at predicting what has happened, <laughs> whether you're an economist or a sociologist or a psychologist or an anthropologist. And that's a, that's a perspective that we probably should learn a little, <laughs> a little better than we do. Um, stick to what we do well. Yeah, we should take that seriously because that, that is that I think that's a very, very astute observation about social science. It's very good at looking at the way things are. It's not so good at looking the way they're going to be. Um, and, and, it, and that's purely because of the simple fact that, you know, we're dealing with individual human beings that are going to ignite new and interesting directions to take things. And so, um, yeah. Well, Dr. Kelly, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on the Anthropology Channel of the New Books Network. Um, and anyone who's interested in either Japan or sport is going to find this a tremendously insightful and provocative read. There's a great deal to think about in this book. And um, I just also want to say your work has, has been an inspiration to me throughout my career. And so it's been a true pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with you about this uh, superb book. Well, I really appreciate uh, this opportunity. You've been an inspiring colleague of mine and a fellow Tohoku person for many years uh, and uh, look forward to continuing this. Yes. All right. Thank you.